0: Five. His faithful horse was his only companion. Some corn in his leather wallet was all the food he carried. He trusted his rifle for the rest. All went well for a time. But in the depth of the pathless forest he missed his way. And the mountains became so steep and rough that his horse could not get across. Imagine his sorrow when, to save his own life, he had to part from his dumb friend and start on alone. Other misfortunes befell him. The little store of corn that he had brought with him gave out and his powder became so wet that it was useless for shooting game. So almost his only food for fourteen days was such nuts and berries as he could gather in his desperate search. He was near death by starvation when he chanced to meet two hunters. They gave him food and asked him to join them. Then, allowing him to take turns in riding their horses, they helped him to reach home in safety. You might think that this better experience would have made Robertson unwilling to risk another journey back through the wilderness. but as we have said, he was not easily thwarted, and the thought of what lay beyond the mountains made him hold the cost light, he gave such glowing accounts of the wonderful country he had seen that by spring 16 families were ready to go with him to make their home there, how the B.A.C.K.W.O.D. lived let us in imagination join this group of travelers as it starts out to cross the mountains, each family has its packed horse perhaps a few families have two carrying household goods, these are not so bulky as ours today, for pioneer life is simple, and the people have at most only what they need. There are, of course, some rolls of bedding and clothing, a few cooking utensils, a few packages of salt and seed corn, and a flask or two of medicine. The pack horse carries also the mother and perhaps a very small child or two. The boys who are old enough to shoulder rifles march in front with their father, ready to shoot game for food or to stand guard against Indians. Some of the older children drive the cows which the settlers are taking along with them. After reaching the place selected for their settlement, the younger children are set to clearing away the brush and piling it up in heaps ready for burning. The father and the elder sons, who are big enough to wield an axe, lose no time in cutting down trees and making a clearing for the log cabin. All work with a will, and soon the cabin is ready. The furniture, like the cabin itself, is rude and simple. A bedstead is set up in a corner, a washstand is placed nearby, and a few three-legged stools are put here and there, and of course there is a table to eat at. Places are quickly found for the water bucket, used to bring water from the stream, the gourd dipper with which to fill it, and other small utensils, while pegs driven into the wall inconvenient places hold clothes, rifles, skins, and the like. If our pioneers are well to do, there may be tucked away in some pack a wool blanket, but usually the chief covering on the bed is the dried skin of some animal, deer, bear, or perhaps buffalo. There is plenty of food, though of course it is plain and simple, consisting mostly of game, instead of the pork and beef which are largely eaten in the east. We shall find these settlers making their meal of bear's meat or venison, for flour corn meal is used. Each family has a mill for grinding the kernels into meal, while for beating it into hominy they use a crude mortar made perhaps by burning a hole in the top of a block of wood. Bread making is a simpler matter with them than with us. For a dough of cornmeal is mixed on a wooden trencher and then either baked in the ashes and called ash cake or before the fire on a board and called johnny cake. Cornmeal is also made into mush, or hasty pudding, and when the settler has cows, mush and milk is a common dish, especially for supper. For butter the settlers use the fat of bear's meat or the gravy of the goose, instead of coffee. They make a drink of parched rye and beans, and for tea they boil sassafras root. Every backwoodsman must be able to use the rifle to good effect, for he has to provide his own meat and protect himself and his family from attack. He must be skillful also in hiding, in moving noiselessly through the forests, and in imitating the notes and calls of different beasts and birds. Sharp eyes and ears must tell him where to look for his game, and his aim must be swift and sure, but most important of all, He must be able to endure hardship and exposure. Sometimes he lives for months in the woods with no food but meat and no shelter but a lean to a brush or even the trunk of a hollow tree into which he may crawl. Deer and bear are the most plentiful game, but now and then there is an exciting combat with wolves, panthers, or cougars. While prowling Indians keep him ever on his guard, the pioneer must be strong, alert, and brave. Each family depends upon itself for most of the necessaries of life. Each member has his own work. The father is the protector and provider, the mother is the housekeeper, the cook, the weaver, and the tailor. Father and sons work out of doors with axe, hoe, and sickle, while indoors the hum of the spinning wheel or the clatter of the loom shows that mother and daughters are busily doing their part. There are some articles, however, like salt and iron, which the settlers cannot always get in the backwoods, these they must obtain by barter. So each family collects all the furs it can, and once a year, after the harvest is gathered, loads them on pack horses, which are driven across the mountains to some large trading town on the seacoast. There the skins are traded for the needed iron or salt. Often many neighbors plan to go together on such a journey. Sometimes they drive before them their steers and dogs to find a market in the east. A bushel of salt costs in these early days a good cow and calf. Now, that is a great deal to pay. And furthermore, as each small and poorly fed pack animal can carry but two bushels, salt is a highly prized article. Since it is so expensive and hard to get, it has to be used sparingly by the mountaineers. Therefore the housewife, instead of salting or pickling her meat, preserves or jerks it by drying it in the sun or smoking it over the fire. The Tennessee settler, like Moon's followers in Kentucky, dresses very much like the Indians for that is the easiest and most fitting way in which to clothe himself for the forest life he leads, and very fine do many stalwart figures appear in the fur cap and moccasins, the loose trousers, or simply leggings of buckskin, and the fringed hunting shirt reaching nearly to the knees, it is held in by a broad belt having a tomahawk in one side and a knife in the other, while this free outdoor life develops strong and vigorous bodies, there is not much schooling in these backwoods settlements, Most boys and girls learn very little except reading and writing and very simple ciphering, or arithmetic, if there are any schoolhouses at all, they are log huts, dimly lighted and furnished very scantily and rudely, the schoolmaster, as a rule, does not know much of books, and is quite untrained as a teacher, his discipline, though severe, is very poor, and he is paid in a way that may seem strange to you, he receives very little in cash and for the rest of his wages he, boards around, with the families of the children he teaches, making his stay longer or shorter according to the number of children in school, in many ways, as you see, the life of the pioneer child, while it was active and full of interest, was very different from yours, he learned, like his elders, to imitate bird calls, to set traps, to shoot a rifle, and at twelve the little lad became a foot soldier, he knew from just which loophole he was to shoot if the Indians attacked the fort, and he took pride in becoming a good marksman. He was carefully trained, to, to follow an Indian trail and to conceal his own when on the war path for such knowledge would be very full to him as a hunter and fighter in the forests. Robertson a brave leader such was the life of these early woodsmen and their families, and to this life Robertson and those who went out with him soon became accustomed. On their arrival at the Watava River the newcomers mingled readily with the Virginians already on the ground, Robertson soon became one of the leading men, his cabin of logs stood on an island in the river, and is said to have been the largest in the settlement, it had a log veranda in front, several rooms, a loft, and best of all, a huge fireplace made of sticks and stones laid in clay, in which a pile of blazing logs roared on cold days, making it a center of good cheer as well as of heat. To us it would have been a most inviting spot for a summer holiday. Robertson was very prosperous and successful at Watauga, but in 1799, after ten years of leadership at this settlement, a restless craving for change and adventure stole over him, and he went forth once more into the wilderness to seek a new home still deeper in the forest. The place he chose was the beautiful country lying along the great bend of the Cumberland River, where Nashville now stands. Many bold settlers were ready and even eager to join Robertson in the new venture, for he was a born leader, a small party went ahead early in the spring to plant corn, so that the settlers might have food when they arrived in the autumn. Robertson and eight other men, who made up the party, left the Watata by the Wilderness Road through Cumberland Gap, crossing the Cumberland River, then, following the trail of wild animals in a southwesterly direction, they came to a suitable place. Here they put up cabins and planted corn, and then, leaving three men to keep the buffaloes from eating the corn when it came up, the other six returned to Watauga. in the autumn two parties started out for the new settlement, one of these, made up mostly of women and children, went by water in flatboats, dugouts, and canoes, a route supposed to be easier though much the longer of the two, whether it was easier, we shall see, the other party, including Robertson himself, Went by land, hoping thus to reach the place of settlement in time to make ready for those coming by water. Robertson and his men arrived about Christmas. Then began a tedious four months of waiting for the others. It was springtime again, April twenty-fourth, when they at last arrived. Their roundabout route had taken them down the Tennessee River, then up the Ohio, and lastly up the Cumberland. The Indians in ambush on and the river banks had attacked them many times during their long and toilsome journey. And the boats were so slow and clumsy that it was impossible for them to escape the flights of arrows. But when they arrived, past troubles were soon forgotten. And with good heart, now that all were together, the settlers took up the work of making homes. However, difficulties with the Indians were not over. The first company of settlers that arrived had been left quite unmolested. But now, as spring opened, bands of Indian hunters and warriors began to make life wretched for them all. There is no doubt that the Red Men did not like to have the settlers kill the game, or scare it off by clearing up the land, but the principal motive for the attacks was the desire for scalps and plunder, just as it was in assailing other Indian tribes. The Indians became a constant terror. They killed the settlers while working in the clearings, hunting game, or getting sold at the lakes. They loved to allure on the unwary by imitating the gobbling of a turkey or the call of some wild beast, and then pounce upon their human prey. As the corn crop, so carefully planned, had been destroyed by heavy freshets in the autumn, the settlers had to scour the woods for food, living on nuts and game. By the time winter had set in they had used up so much of their powder and bullets that Robertson resolved to go to Kentucky for more. Robertson saves the settlement he went safely, though quite alone, and returned on the evening of January 15, 1780 with a good supply of ammunition. You may be sure he had a hearty welcome in the fort where all were gathered, there was much to talk about, and they sat up till late into the night, all went to bed, tired and sleepy, without any fear, for at that season of the year the red men seldom molested them, and no sentinels were left on guard, soon all were in deep slumber except Robertson, whose sense of lurking danger would not let him sleep, he kept feeling that enemies might be near, and he was right, for just outside the fort, Prowling in the thick underbrush and hidden by the great trees, there lay an ambush a band of painted warriors, hungry for plunder, eager for scalps. They creep forward to their attack. They are very cautious, for a bright moon lights up the blockhouses and the palisaded fort. Suddenly a moving shadow falls upon the moonlit clearing outside the fort. An Indian is stealthily crossing from the dark woods to the wall. There he crouches close, to be out of sight of the inmates of the fort. Another crouching figure and another, one by one every feathered warrior crosses and keeps close to the palisade, the next move is to slide cautiously the strong bar and into the chain which fastens the gate, it is done skillfully enough, but the chain clanks or the hinges creak, the wakeful Robertson springs quickly to his feet, his keen eyes catch sight of the swift, dark figures, moving stealthily into the fort, Indians, he shouts, and off goes his rifle, Instantly every settler has snatched the gun lying at his side, in a second the shots ring out, and the Indians flee through the gate to disappear into the leafy woods, but they have lost one man, whom Robertson has shot, and has killed or wounded three or four of the settlers. Robertson, by keen watchfulness, has saved the fort from capture and his comrades from probable torture or death. This was only one of many occasions in which Robertson's leadership saved the day. After the revolution ended 1783 the Indians were not so unfriendly, for the English were no longer paying them for scalps. People, therefore, became less timid about crossing the mountains, and a large number migrated from Virginia and North Carolina to the Tennessee settlement and made their homes at Nashville. As numbers grew larger, dangers became less. By this time Robertson had become well known through the successful planning of his two settlements and for the wisdom and bravery with which he managed them. As a reward for his valuable services, Washington later on 1790 made him a general in the army. In 1814 he died. He is the kind of man we like to think of as a pioneer in the making of our history. Sturdy and self-reliant, strong and fearless, he cheerfully faced the unending struggle with the hard conditions of those early days. Though his life was narrow, it cut deep in its loyalty to friends and country. Some things to think about 1. What can you tell of Robertson's boyhood? 2. Imagine yourself as one of a group of travelers on the way to Kentucky or Tennessee, and tell all you can about the journey. 3. Tell all you can about the food, clothing, shelter, and other conditions of life in these backwoods settlements. 4. What sort of training did the pioneer boy receive in school and at home? 5. Why did Robertson plant a settlement at the place where Nashville now stands? 6. How did he save the settlement from the Indians? What do you admire about him? 7. Are you making frequent use of the map? Chapter IX John S. E. Another daring leader who did much to build up the settlements in Tennessee was John Sevier. Born in 1745, Sevier was but three years younger than Robertson, and was closely associated with him in later life. Sevier's birthplace was in the western part of Virginia, but while he was still a young boy, The family was driven from their home by the Indians and went to Fredericksburg, Virginia. There he went to the same school which George Washington had attended not many years before. John's mother had taught him to read, and at school he learned some full things, still he was not fond of books, and learned most from people and what was going on about him. He left school when he was 16 and married before he was 17. About six miles from his father's house he put up a building which was dwelling, storehouse and fought all in one, here on the frontier he carried on a thriving trade with settlers and Indians, and was so successful that by the time he was twenty-six he was looked upon as a rich man, he was attractive in appearance, being tall, slender, and erect, with frank blue eyes, fair skin, and brown hair, he was a man of commanding presence, and his athletic figure seemed well sweet to the fringed hunting suit which every pioneer wore. His merry disposition and great charm of manner easily won many friends, and these he kept by his natural kindness and courtesy. He was never happier than when entertaining generously those who came to his home. Yet these gentle and lovable qualities did not prevent him from being a brave and skillful warrior, who could carry terror to the hearts of his foes. It was while he was engaged in his trading business that Sevier heard of Robertson's settlement in the West, and became interested in it as a possible home for himself and his family. In 1772 he decided to ride through the forests to the Watauga settlement and find out what kind of place it was, alone over the mountains and through the woods he made the journey, at the journey's end, when he met Robertson, they became friends at once, for in spirit and aims they were much alike, both were brave and fearless, and both were seeking better homes for their families, Sevier decided to join the settlement on the Watauga, and went back to bring his wife and two children, returning with them. He entered heartily into the common life of the frontier, with its many hardships and pleasures, and soon became a prominent man in the little colony. For a time after their arrival the settlement was not much troubled by the Indians. The Cherokees had given their consent to have the land taken up, and all went well for a period. But, as we had already seen in the case of Boone, the breaking out of the Revolution, and the action of the British in arming the Indians with guns and rewarding them for bringing in captives, Disturbed this peace and stirred up the tribes against the backwoodsmen. The Cherokees then broke their agreement with the settlers and in large numbers made bold and murderous attacks upon the many backcountry settlements in southwestern Virginia, the eastern Carolinas, northwestern Georgia, and what is now eastern Tennessee. As Watauga was the nearest settlement to the Cherokee towns and villages, it was likely to suffer most from the attack. Robertson commanded the fort, with Sevier as his lieutenant. Only 40 or 50 men were in the fort when it was attacked, although it was crowded with women and children. But these few men were resolute, well armed, and on their guard. It was in the grey light of the early morning that the Indians stole up for the attack. But the friendly squad had given warning of danger, and the settlers were ready. The loopholes opened upon the Indians and they were at once beaten back with loss. This was the beginning of a long, dreary siege, as the stockade was too strong to be taken by an assault. The Indians tried to starve the colonists out, for about three weeks they lurked about so that the people within the fort dared not go outside for food, and had to live mostly on parched corn. It was a weary time, as you may imagine, all became very tired of that diet and very impatient at being kept shut up within the palisades for so long, and from time to time someone would venture out, heedless of warning and of danger. In running this risk, three or four men were shot by the Indians and one boy was carried off to an Indian village and burned at the stake. A woman also was captured. You will be interested in the thrilling experience of another woman. Her name was Kate Cheryl. She was tall and beautiful, graceful and gentle in manner, and, as we shall see, not lacking courage. One day, taking a picture to get water from the river, she had ventured some distance from the fort. when Indians dashed out of the forest and sprang toward her, seeing her danger she darted swiftly back, with her bloodthirsty foes close at her heels, it was a race for life, and she knew it, there was not time to reach the gate, so she ran the shortest way to the fort, caught hold of the top of the pickets, and, by an almost superhuman effort sprung over to the other side, she did not fall to the ground as she expected, but into the arms of John Sevier, for he was standing at a loophole close by, and caught her, he had witnessed her danger and helped her to escape by shooting the Indian closest in the chase. A romance is connected with this, for we are told that John Sevier, who was then a young widower of 31, married Kate Cheryl during the siege. Although the Indian braves were eager for the scalps of the Watauga settlers, they failed to capture the fort and finally went away, just as they did from the neighboring settlements. For a while, but only for a while, the pioneers were left free from Indian ravages a hero among the Tennessee settlers in spite of the danger. However, daring men kept coming to join the pioneers at the Watauga settlements. Sevier continued to be a leading man in that backwoods region. And when, some years later, Robertson, as you remember, left Watauga to go to the Cumberland Valley, Sevier became the most prominent man in the colony. He was so prosperous that he could surround himself with much comfort. He built a rambling, one-story house on the Nolikuti Creek a branch of the French Broad River. It was the largest in the settlement and was noted for the lavish entertainments given there, for Sevier was the same generous host as of old. His house consisted of two groups of rooms connected by a covered porch. Sevier with his family lived in one of the groups, and housed his guests in the other. There were large verandas and huge fireplaces, in which, during cold weather, cheerful wood fires blazed, here to all, rich and poor alike and especially to the men who had followed him in the many battles against the Indians. Sevier gave a hearty welcome. Rarely was his hospitable home without guests, and the table was heaped with such plain and wholesome food as woods and fields afforded. It was Sevier's delight at weddings or special merrymakings to feast all the backwoods people of the neighborhood at a barbecue, where an ox was roasted whole over the fire, and where, in fair weather, board tables were set under the trees. Bees were loaded with wild fowl, Bears meat, venison, beef, Johnny cakes, ash cakes, hominy, and applejack. Should you not like to have been one of the guests during one of these merrymaking feasts? 1780 news was brought that Major Ferguson, one of the ablest officers in Cornwallis's army, was threatening to make an attack on the backcountry settlements. That once severe, along with Isaac Shelby and others, set out to raise an army of frontiersmen to march against Ferguson. Soon a thousand men were riding through the forests to find the British force, of which every man except the commander was an American Tory, they came upon it in a strong position on King's Mountain, without delay the Americans made a furious attack, they fought with great heroism, charging up the steep mountainside with reckless bravery, they were divided into three bodies, one on the right of the British, one on the left, and another in front, Sevier commanded the division on the left. At just the right moment he led his men in a resistless rush up the mountainside and made victory certain for the Americans, the British raised the white flag of surrender, all of Ferguson's soldiers who had not been killed or wounded were made prisoners, by this victory the Backwoods Hunters greatly weakened the British cause in the south and made easier General Green's victory over Cornwallis, of which we had already learned, thus they took their part in winning the nation's liberty, on returning from King's Mountain to their homes. These pioneer warriors had to meet the Cherokees again in stubborn warfare. In his usual way Sevier struck a swift, crushing blow by marching to the mountain homes of his savage foes, where he burned a thousand of their cabins and destroyed fifty thousand bushels of their corn, in spite of this defeat. However, the Indians kept on fighting, so Sevier determined to strike another blow, At the head of one hundred and fifty picked horsemen, He rode for 150 miles through the mountain wilds and completely surprised the Indians, who did not think it possible for an enemy to reach them. After taking the main town, burning two other towns and three villages, capturing 200 horses, destroying a large quantity of provisions, and doing other damage, he withdrew and returned home in safety. He had made the Indians afraid, and they were quiet for a time. These glimpses into the life of John Sevier must help you to understand why he became a hero among all the people of the frontier. They admired him for his brilliant leadership, they were grateful for his protection, and they loved him as a friend. They fondly called him Nolikuddy Jack, and when later, the settlements became the state of Tennessee, again and again they elected him governor, and sent him to Congress. Without doubt few men of his day were his equal as a fighter against the Indians. It is said that in all his warfare with them he won 35 victories and never lost a battle. As we have seen, he moved with great swiftness in attacking his foes. Through his able scouts he learned the strength and weakness of his enemies and, before they realized what was going on, with a wild shout he and his bold followers swept down upon them like a hurricane, striking terror to the hearts of even the bravest. Sevier was active in public interests even to the last years of his long life. When eighty years old, he was at the head of a body of men who were marking the borderline between Georgia and the lands of the Indians. The labor proved too great for his bodily strength, and the aged man died 1815, in his tent, with only a few soldiers and Indians around him. He was buried where he died, and a simple slab, with the two words, John Sevier, inscribed upon it, indicates the spot where his body rests, in the homes of eastern Tennessee stories of his brave deeds are still told to eager listening children, for his memory is held dear in the hearts of old and young alike. Tennessee owes much to this brave, loyal, and high-minded man, who played a large part in shaping her destiny. Some things to think about 1. Why did Sevier go with his family to the Watauga settlement? 2. Imagine yourself in the Watauga fort when the Cherokees were trying to capture it, and give an account of what happened. 3. Describe Sevier's hospitable home and tell something about the kind of feast he prepared for a wedding there. 4. What kind of Indian fighter was severe? 5. Tell all you can about his personal appearance. What do you admire about him? Chapter X George Rogers Clark Among the foremost of those who promoted the westward growth of our country stands George Rogers Clark. He was born near Monticello, Virginia, November 19, 1752. He came of a good family and he received fairly good training in school but he learned much more from life than from books. When 20 years old he was already a woodsman and surveyor on the Upper Ohio, and did something also at farming. About two years later, with measuring rod and axe, he moved on to Kentucky, where he continued his work as a surveyor. A deadly struggle was going on here, you remember, with the Indians, who had been roused by the British against the backwoodsmen, and in the struggle Clark became a leader. Why it was that in hardly more than a year's time this young man of twenty-four rose to a position of leadership among the settlers, and was chosen one of their lawmakers, we shall understand when we come to see more of his sterling qualities. Nature had given him a pleasing face which men trusted, his forehead was high and broad under a shock of sandy hair, and honest blue eyes peered out from under heavy, shaggy eyebrows, his strong body could endure almost any hardship, and his splendid health was matched by his adventurous spirit his fearless courage was equal to any danger, and his resolute purpose would not give way in the face of almost insurmountable difficulties, his great task would have been impossible except as he possessed these qualities, and we know that one does not come by them suddenly, they grow by bravely conquering the fears of everyday life and not giving in to difficulties, it was in this way that the fearless hunters of Kentucky quickly recognized in him a master spirit, Clark, as you may imagine, was not content to remain in Kentucky merely as a skillful hunter and bold leader of war parties sent out to punish Indian bands. His keen mind had worked out a brilliant plan, which he was eager to carry through. It was nothing less than to conquer for his country the vast stretch of land lying north of the Ohio and east of the Mississippi, now included in the present Great Lakes states. In this vast region of forest and prairie the only settlements were the scattered French hamlets, begun in the early days of exploration when the French occupied the land and traded with the Indians for fur. These hamlets had passed into the hands of the English after the last French war and were made the centers of English power, from which, as we have seen, the English commanders aroused the Indians against the backwoodsmen remote from their home settlements. These few villages or trading posts, which were defended by forts, were scattered here and there at convenient places along the river courses, the three strongest forts being at Vincennes on the Wabash, at Kaskaskia, and at Detroit, over all the rest of the wild territory roamed hostile Indian tribes, hunting and fighting against one another as well as against the frontiersmen. Clark saw that if this region should be conquered the spreading prairies could be opened up for settlement. As the first step in carrying out his plan, he needed to secure aid from Patrick Henry, the governor of Virginia. Early in October, 1777, he started out on horseback from Harrodsburg. One of the Kentucky settlements. To a ride through the forests and over the mountains to a Williamsburg. Then the capital of the state. So urgent was his haste that he stopped on the way but a single day at his father's house. The home of his childhood. And then pressed on to a Williamsburg. It took a whole month to make this journey of 620 meters.